G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Ardeet. Today is Tuesday, the 5th of September, and our topics this week are the Greens leader, Adam Bant, is urging Australians to embrace civil disobedience. I think we're going to get real stuck into that one. And Australia's federal whistleblowing laws have not protected anyone since their inception. That doesn't sound good. Of course, we have our two text town talk, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deep. And we'll finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, we wanted to shout out some of the countries from around the world where our listeners are located. And this week, we wanted to say... All right, how's it going? To all of our listeners in the UK, and I've probably butchered that that accent. <laughs> About as good as me on the, on the accents. <laughs> Hello, Governor. <laughs> Hello. Um, <laughs> so what I have you been up like to this week? I feel like a parrot when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> but good evening. Good evening. Uh, what I've been up to? Oh, it's been a bit of a, a, a maintenance and prep for maintenance uh, week. We've got uh, t- tomorrow getting the the water tanks cleaned out. Had. Uh, it's been a few years since we – well, actually, they haven't been done since we've been in here, which I've found out is uh, a bit too long. A uh, uh, little bit of uh, stuff was getting into the the filters and basically you know, reducing the flow to nothing, and it also ends up stuffing the, the filters. So um, Blake's going to turn up tomorrow with his, his gear – run the vacuum through it, hopefully get rid of all the sludge, and then we can get off town pressure and get back onto uh, the, the pressure from the pump because the town pressure is it uh, comes in at 500, oh, God, what is it? Is it kilopascals? I can't remember what it is, 500-something, but the actual pump we've got on there puts it at, at 600. So, yeah, the, the shower's oh. a bit better under the pump and the water pressure's a bit better. So Well, that's good. That sounds like that's one of those jobs that sort of like spring cleaning type jobs that you just, you never want to do, but once you're done, you're glad they're done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's it's, it's overdue. Yeah. Yeah. We've got. Sorry, go on. Oh, we've got spring cleaning coming up, school holidays in a few weeks. We'll take the opportunity to uh, start, start doing a bit of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And then Friday, we're getting the, uh, uh, well, it's a, we call it a septic system, but really it's it's technically a water treatment uh, system. Getting that pumped out with all the sort of muck, you have to get that done every few years. So, yep. yeah, there's a few things I have to sort of clear and get ready for all of, of those. So it hasn't been, uh, yeah, has, haven't been up to anything more exciting other than getting things ready for maintenance and doing some uh, doing some stuff in the the yard in preparation for for that but that's good that's all the the things you need to keep the the place going so yeah that's, that's, that's been just my week boring homeowner stuff unfortunately um but you know 
those are the things you got to do, I guess. Um, like yeah. I said, we'll be getting ready for that in the next couple of weeks. I'm so not looking forward to it because we've got to basically clean out the garage and the shed and oh. there's a bunch of stuff that needs to needs to be taken to the dump or, or sold and moved on and and um, some new storage shelving put in and installed and all the rest all the really boring stuff but again once it's done you're grateful for it having been done so um yeah. that is yeah, the life of, of an adult really it sucks <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> but this last week, uh, this time last week, I was in Brisbane, uh, and I'll sort of talk about it a little bit later. But we did, uh, we had a bit of fun. We went to the museum, uh, and again, I'll get on to that a little bit later on with our two ticks town talk. Uh, and we actually went to the Queensland Museum, which I won't talk about anymore. Uh, and then we went to the, the uh, Queensland Maritime Museum in Brisbane uh, at the end of South Bank. And I'd never been there before. Um, and it was quite cool because they had the uh, World War II frigate HMAS Diamantina, or the ex-HMAS Diamantina, I should say, uh, in a dry dock there. And it's uh, mostly you can go to almost almost every compartment, uh, and that was really cool because you know I, I've obviously spent a lot of time on naval vessels of all shapes and sizes. But my son, who was with me, uh, he's about to turn eleven, and he'd never seen anything like that outside of you know movies and video games and those sorts of things. So Ooh. it was quite cool for him to see, uh, admittedly, an older warship, but. I think he had a, a, a much more, a, you know, an appreciation for for those sorts of things um, as a result of that. And we, you know, we saw a lot of other stuff, lots of merchant ship, uh, lots of memorabilia, all, all sorts of cool things at the the South Bank uh, Maritime Museum. Uh, and if you're in South Bank, it's well worth uh, going and having a look. It's it's very cheap. I think it was like fifteen bucks or something to get in. So. Um, well worth the entry fee and spend an hour or two seeing a little bit of a little bit of naval history in Brisbane. Look, now you made you mentioned just just before we get on to our, our topics, just because you said something that uh, I didn't didn't know. You said the HMAS Diamantina, and then you corrected yourself and you said the the ex HMAS Diamantina. Made me think of two questions. When it's decommissioned, or when it like I, I assume that's the term to say, like if you've got one like that that's thrown into a museum, is it no longer uh, able to use HMAS? And the other question is, if it gets decommissioned like that or reused like that, do they ever reuse the names? Uh Yes, on both accounts. So, the generally what they do is they call it the X. So they'll put like E X H M A S on the front of it. Um, at the Maritime Museum, they actually didn't do that, which quite surprised me because I haven't seen that before, where they continue to just use the the original name because there is uh, an H M A S Diamantina um, in. Excuse me. Uh, in um, in the fleet currently, it it uh, is a um, mine hunter, a mine hunting ship. Uh, it's not very big. Um, and a friend of mine 
served on it, its uh, home ports in Sydney at HMAS Waterhen. Um, and oh, so they mentioned Waterhen before, yeah. Yeah, so there is a Diamantina ship. HMAS Diamantina is a ship currently in inventory in the fleet. Um, so the X HMAS Diamantina is in South Bank in Dry Dock, and it's the only river class frigate left. There was a few built in the 1940s, um, but all of them have been decommissioned and uh, m- almost all of them are scrapped except for the Diamantina 1. Um, oh. When you're talking about it, normally you either call it the Diamantina, like the first, or the X HMAS Diamantina. Right. You can, re- you can reuse a name, but it can't be reused until the old vessel has been struck from the record. Um, and prior to that, they'll call it New Ship, N-U, New Ship. Um, so it'd be New Ship Diamantina, not HMAS, before commissioning. So, oh. so oh. there's a lot of superstition around names and there's a lot of tradition around how names work and when you can call it this and when you have to call it something else and all, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Oh. The superstition of the sea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And sailors are very superstitious. And you'll get people that will refuse to, to, um, you know, they'll refuse to go on certain ships or, or and things like that because of, because of superstition. Is it silly? I don't know. I believe in some of this stuff, even though I don't believe in a lot of super, you know, supernatural things. But I am pretty superstitious, so... Ah, I had I the first time I went on a, a shipping charter, a shipping charter, a fishing charter. Uh, I thought the blokes that I was going with were were just bullshitting me when they said, "Have you got any bananas uh, with you in your thing for snacks?" And couldn't I said, "No, I don't." But why the hell would that matter? And they said, "Well, a lot of these guys won't actually let you on the boat if you've got a banana because it's bad luck." Because it's bad luck. Have you heard that yeah. one? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Though I've also oh, been definitely. on ships. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely been on on you know uh, day trips on boats. I've been on all sorts of watercraft with bananas. Um, and touch wood, nothing's ever happened. But of course, that's the point of superstition. If something does happen, you can blame the bananas. Of course, um, yeah, no, it's say, the whole stuff. None of it makes any sense. But it's it's the fun of the fun of the sea, I guess. As well, it's yeah. 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 Um, right, we must carry on. So the yep. Greens leader Adam Band uh, urges Australians to embrace civil disobedience and to join climate protests. Adam Bant has called upon the people to join disruptive climate protests to pressure the Albanese government to stop opening new fossil fuel mines, saying he plans to help blockade the country's largest coal port. He's also written to the leaders of 16 Pacific Island nations suggesting they shouldn't make any support for an Australian bid to host the UN Climate Summit conditional on the government taking stronger climate action. Speaking to climate activists in Melbourne last Wednesday night, 
Bant said Labor was hell-bent on opening more coal, mine, coal and gas mines. He said more people needed to get in behind groups that engaged in non-violent civil disobedience, specifically naming Disrupt Burrup Hub, Rising Tide, and Extinction Rebellion. Those last two we've heard in the news over the last sort of couple of years. Uh, Bant has compared frontline climate activists to the types of civil disobedience that have been so crucial throughout history in securing change, from ending slavery to gaining women's suffrage, from workers' rights to civil rights. According to speech extracts, he said, and I quote, the Labour and Nationals were kicked out of office for thumbing their nose at the climate crisis. But with Labour, it's somehow more disappointing because you know that their doing is wrong. Some Labour MPs might not get into politics to help out oil and gas company Woodside, but sure enough, they end up there. Now we need to embrace the importance of protest and civil disobedience. We must come together to fight back. Strong words from the Greens leader. He told the event organised by the group Rising Tide that he hoped to join a people's blockade planned at the Newcastle coal port in November. Meanwhile, in Western Australia, people connected to the group Disrupt Burrup Hub have been criticised for interrupting major sport and art exhibitions, releasing a stink bomb that caused an evacuation at the Woodside headquarters and arriving at dawn outside the home of Woodside's chief executive, Meg O'Neill. Activists have accused the state government, police and Woodside of working together to suppress peaceful protests. In the east, 21 people have been arrested during a week of coordinated blockades at the ports of Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland in June. Several state governments have increased maximum prison and financial penalties for activists. Though Bant said the law is often complex, but the morality is simple. In his letter to Pacific leaders, Bant said he supported a call for the Pacific Elders' Voice, a group including former leaders of the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu and Palu, that there was no hurry to support Australia's bid to co-host the COP31 UN Climate Conference in 2026, while the country continu continued to support fossil fuel expansion. Australia is considered well-placed to host the COP31, though, having won support from several members of the Western Europe and other groups that will decide where the meeting is held. Speaking before flying out to the Fijian capital of Suva, uh, Bowen said that there was strong support for a joint Australia-Pacific bid to stage the conference. He said he told ministers Australia was moving from getting 35% of its electricity from renewable sources today to 82% in 3030, which we've spoken about before. Very, very bold target. He said it's been a good dis discussion how fast the transition to renewable energy in Australia is going and is going very, very fast. But we have a lot more to do. As I said to the ministers, I want people to leave COP31 if Australia is hosting it, saying, wow, that was a Pacific COP. And by that, it means a chance to elevate Pacific issues at a time when the Pacific has the world's attention. This all smells like politics to me. From Bant 
doing, suggesting <laughs> what he's suggesting uh, to Bowen saying, focusing on how fast the shift is. is and to the, to the credit, like, of the government, they do have a plan. I think it's, you know, and we've spoken about this before, it is very ambitious, uh, 82% by 3030, but they are pushing in that direction, you know, they're doing what they can uh, in that direction. So I think it's a little bit dirty of, of Adam Bant to sort of go behind the government's back. But then again, it's, that's kind of his his whole thing, isn't it? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, a sneaky old bit. couple of things there. I've got to say, in principle, I support what Bant's saying. Now, that might surprise you a little bit, given my comments before on the the Greens, a number of these things. But in principle, uh, non-violent civil disobedience, I think, can be an effective tool. And I think when you get the numbers, it can be a powerful tool. I like it as a suggestion. I have. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. As a principle, unfortunately, it's the in the interpretation of how it's it's done. Um, I'm fine. I find blocking people going to to work, um, attacking attacking works of of art, uh, public vandalism. I'm really not keen on people turning up to somebody's home either. That uh, you you mentioned something about one of the yeah. Woodside CEOs. I think that's uh, in, intimidation. And look, I understand the other argument is, oh look, they're doing this to the environment. Someone has to stand up to them. However, I t- to me that crosses a line into intimidation. Don't have any real issue with people turning up to her office, which is the official place of it but to the home i for me that crosses a bit of a line and i think that's probably the key um comment i have on this it's it's where you draw the line i think bant was uh i think he was reasonable in how he suggested it be undertaken um i don't know what the man's thinking uh about People who have crossed the line, um, so you know, I, I won't, I won't second guess there. So taking him at what he said, I thought it was a fairly reasonable stance that he took, um, and what he was going to suggest people to do. I also thought the fact that he's going to get out there and, uh, yeah, put himself on the line as well is is good politics. It's good optics. It's good messaging for his brand. Of politics, and I do. You know, I've we've, I've made this comment in previous uh, podcasts. I think he's a very good politician. He's a great leader for the Greens, and he does a lot of things right. And like the Greens as a whole, he seems to understand this public messaging in a way that the the LNP and Labor just don't seem to to get. Yeah, he he gets this so. I thought that was I thought that was positive. I thought this thing about look, let's uh, encourage the Pacific nations. I can't remember who su- suggested that. Did Bant to say he was encouraging the Pacific nations to basically um, 
stop the cop happening for Australia or was it someone else? Uh, yeah, it was. It was Adam Bant. Uh, he, he said he wanted the 16 Pacific Island nations that they shouldn't support Australia's bid uh, to host the U.S. Climate Summit unless the government takes stronger climate action. Okay. Look, I tend to... Uh... I think look that's that's probably a good uh, that's probably a good play as as well uh it's it's a way for him to empower those those specific nations but to me the, the these cop conferences are, are, are just so much rubbish uh, I've each time they come around uh people are all cock a hoop with how this is going to be great and we're going to do this that and the other and we're going to pledge a whole lot of new targets and you know pat themselves on the the back and fly in with the private jets and close down the roads and you know just shovel junk it into the into the cobs uh to me they're 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 just they're just a public spectacle a complete waste and they're so detached from what the average person is thinking and doing that i i just hold them in very very low esteem yeah they've been going on for for years what's this cop 31 we're going up to and we're just going to get the same old crap again with that but i thought in terms of what we're talking about bant encouraging those uh pacific nations Again, I thought it was a another good mood, and yeah, <laughs> I find myself in the horrible position once again of supporting something that the the Greens are are doing. But credit where credit's due. What do you think? I I guess I'm sort of torn because I don't necessarily like uh, Bant's style of politics and and what he stands for. However, credit where credit's due. He is very good at playing politics. He's probably the best green, Greens leader that they've had in quite a long time, if I'm honest. Um, I do think it's a little bit um, ironic him standing there telling people to be, uh, you know, to, to, to do more civil disobedience um, when he knows that it's going to likely involve probably younger poorer people getting locked up um there's a certain degree of irony where of course if he goes and attends um very little will happen to him uh he, you know he, he has the the financial backing and uh uh lawyers of the party and it, you know he's not exactly a poor man himself um but at least you know he does um he does back up what what he says with action so i'll give him credit with that as well um the civil disobedience thing you sort of mentioned about um disrupting people going to work and stuff like that i hate that because it would frustrate me a lot if that impacted me however i kind of think that's the point um you were trying to upset regular people so that they will push their elected officials into that point of view. Um, and, of course, in the past, for things like ending slavery, gaining women's suffrage, uh, workers and civil rights, uh, those required, uh, you know, that sort of civil disobedience and activism. 
I, I do think there's a right way to go about it and there's a wrong way of going about it. Um, and I think we're seeing probably more of the wrong way in recent years of people being quite destructive. Um, you know, we've seen things where they're throwing paint on on priceless artworks and things like that. I understand the message about climate change and things like that, but the reality is the wheels are already moving in a lot of places in that direction. Um, the p- Throwing paint on a masterpiece in the Louvre isn't probably going to change the French government's um, move more. You know, they're already doing that sort of stuff is what I'm trying to say. You know, it... it the there are countries in the world that don't care, um, like Russia, like China, uh, that go and throw paint on a masterpiece in a Chinese museum and see what happens. Um, ah. And they're and they're the sort of and that's the sort of you know that's the sort of country where you need to be doing that stuff because they're not moving in that direction. They're moving in the wrong direction, and they're the biggest and most polluting. So I don't know. I think there's there's sort of got to be a balance, right, between getting your voice heard, getting your message out there, and also because you you end up harming your message if you go too far. Um, I think so you, too. Yeah, there's a point where it goes from civil disobedience to eco terrorism, um, and I'm not suggesting any of these groups are doing that. But there's sometimes there's a you know there's a fine line between those two things, and I think you got to be careful with that sort of stuff. Um, the COP uh, 31 being hosted in Australia, I think is good for Australia in terms of promoting Australia on the world stage. Um, I don't do, think, do I think you, they are. How, how, how is it good for us? How? What, what, what do you mean by that? Just having world leaders here in Australia and all their entourage and whatnot. Um, the COP, uh, they include almost every member nation of the United Nations. And I think for the point of diplomacy and having all of those countries in one place, I think that can only be positive for Australia and the Pacific. Um, However, it is not to say that you couldn't have those, uh, have the world's attention on those sort of issues if it was hosted elsewhere in the world. So it's sort of one of those ones where I think it is a bit of... um, a bit of a dick measuring contest, I think some of the yep. stuff is to yeah, be so that's crude. Pro- that's probably not a bad call. Now, now you're getting into the area of where I consider it to be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it. I think that can be a positive for the country that it's hosted in, um, and it can also be a, a real big negative. I think the last one was hosted in Qatar, Qatar, uh, because they were hosting like the World Cup and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just looked at that and was like, you know, you're taking the piss. <laughs> a, a country with such a bad climate record hosting the UN Convention on Climate Change. Uh, you know, it. like, whose idea was that? You know what I mean? I, I don't think that <laughs> negative appeal necessarily applies to Australia, but that's providing we continue on the trend of, of you know, the renewables and, and that kind of stuff. So I definitely think there's a there's a potential positive here. But at the same time, like, 
it could blow up in your face and and be a big problem. So um, it's just this whole story just is screams politics. Bant's doing what what he's going to do. He he's the head of the Greens Party, of course. Yep. You know that I would be surprised if he wasn't doing something like this. Um, even if yeah, I do I think it's, it's a little bit a little bit sneaky, but it's good politics. I mean, that's that's what yep. his job is, isn't it? Yeah, you're you're exactly right, and you you mentioned renewables and that. One of the problems I do have with this is that the the Greens, in my opinion, are so ignorantly against nuclear energy. I think they can make the argument of, uh, look, we don't think it's financially viable. We don't think it'll work for Australia for these reasons. However, we can support. Um, nuclear energy because of just how good it can be for reducing carbon emissions but you know the the the, the stance of just simply being a, a, against it for me dilutes the uh, veracity of their their message i think as well as with the nuclear energy thing i was thinking about this the other day and I think the reason around the world the Greens parties don't like nuclear energy is because of nuclear weapons. Nuclear energy is this weird, uh, this very unusual technology where the weapons programs came first and then the energy programs came second. Mm. And I think if it was the other way around, I think a lot of the... Greens parties and the socialist parties and stuff like that would probably be a little bit more on board with it. But I feel like because it was invented the way that it was, which is kind of backwards to how most things go, has really tainted it in their eyes. And they they struggle to divorce those two technologies, even though we know, you know, how they work. And we've discussed that many times before. So I can understand why Bant doesn't want to do that because he sort of isn't a pacifist party and, and all that kind of stuff it is frustrating though because it's like you could get a lot more voters if you shifted your um stance on this one specific thing however they're probably if i'm honest sort of thinking out loud they're probably not the sort of people that aligned with a lot of their other policies so they probably don't necessarily want the party to be diluted by uh nuclear advocates that um are not necessarily aligned with their other their other ideals and and, and ideology and things like that so um, yeah but they could phrase it they could phrase it a bit differently they could they could say we don't support nuclear 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 energy for these uh reasons that's our policy however we acknowledge how beneficial it can be and we acknowledge why people would work for it. And when it becomes viable, we're happy to work with other um, political parties to ensure that it's implemented in, a, in a, a safe and peaceful way. I think they can still make a commitment to it without necessarily saying that they support it 100%. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know why they, they don't. Uh, I, the only thing I can put it down to is the the nuclear energy type situation, but um, the nuclear weapons situation, yeah, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. But then again, 
Um, <laughs> not trying to be mean, but there's a lot of Greens policies that don't make any sense to me. Um, so, well, Saint I'm Greta's probably the worst on board person. with it, as I understand. Is she? Is she still in the limelight? Yeah, she- Do people still care what she thinks? Well, I suppose on social media they they do, and you know, in, I suppose in fairness to her, she's had so much exposure to the things now. So there's a lot of things that she'd learn as is working. But uh, my understanding, happy to be corrected, and if I've got this wrong, slam me in the uh, the comments when we publish this on the the R slash Australian subreddit. Uh, but my understanding is that she recently, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, said that she. Uh, could see the benefits of nuke of nuclear energy in um, in a number of situations, which to me I thought was a pretty rational comment coming from her. Yeah, I, I honestly I think a lot of people, myself even included, um, I had uh, not not particularly high opinion of nuclear energy because simply put, you know, and I'll be the first to admit, I didn't know enough about it. Um, and then once I learned a lot more, I realized it wasn't a scary boogeyman that we've all been led to believe. And I think the more we talk about this, the more people look into this, uh, and the more people realize that the future definitely has uh, a room for nuclear energy as part of the solution, um, the better is... Are our listeners getting sick of us telling them that? Probably. At this oh, point. that's probably on me. I do. I do work it in because it just it does. Um, it but, does blow my mind that it's it's not getting better things. But yes. Yeah. Look, I think if you're listening to this and you agree, you should probably you know talk to more people about it. Talk to your local member, even if you're not in Australia. As we know, a lot of our listeners are from all around the world. I think it's something to be something that there is a lot of room to grow uh it's not as scary as things uh you know as it was made out to be and it's definitely a boogeyman um of the energy sector that it doesn't it really unjustly deserves um you know mostly because of chernobyl thanks the soviets you stuffed it for everyone um (laughs) Yeah, but the nu- nuclear energy is good for whether you're in a, a city or whether you're in a small town. Damn straight. Let's move on to our two towns, two ticks town talk. I've been this week's two ticks town talk, we're going to head back out to the Queensland Outback to the little town of Winton, population 856. Now, I briefly mentioned Winton when we spoke about the Outback town of Longreach, uh, as Winton is, you basically head head north from Longreach on the highway, uh, and you'll end up in Winton, and Winton is the original birthplace of Qantas, but Winton itself has a very long and storied history. And I'll come back to why this is relevant in a minute. So the traditional owners of the Winton area is the Cora people, uh, and they consider 
Bladsdeberg National Park area to be a special part of their traditional country. The park is also important to the Karawali people. So in 1860, William Landsborough undertook extensive exploration of both the Western Diamantina rivers and it seems very likely that he would have found himself in where Winton's future site would have been at least once uh, as the town of Winton uh, lays on the Western River. However, the first European settlers didn't come to the area until 1866. But most of them didn't stay very long because the drought struck the area uh, within a couple of years. I can imagine living in the outback back then without uh, anything, any of the modern comforts in a drought would have been particularly difficult. (laughs) So Robert Allen was a former police sergeant in the town of Aramac. He left there in about 1875 and moved west to the Pelican Waterholes, which is about 1.5 k's west of where the town's current site is, where he set up a shop and a public house in 1876. However... There were heavy rains that year, and (laughs) it brought Alan a great deal of woe. He even wrote in his diary that, and I quote, he was compelled by floods to remain two days on the wall plate of his building, which in modern language that he had to sit on his roof for two days. Uh, When the flooding had subsided, he shifted what was left of his business to where Winton currently resides. Uh, And therefore, Robert Allen is the founder of the town. Now, there is a lot of colonial history, like a huge amount of colonial history that we could go over for this small town. But there's a very specific reason I wanted to talk about uh, Winton, because as you'll remember, I mentioned at the very beginning, I was in Brisbane last week at the Queensland Museum, and they had a dinosaur exhibit. Now, the main exhibit that we were there for was the Patagonian dinosaurs from South America, from Argentina specifically. But there was also a section... bloody specific. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we just wandered by and we thought, oh, the Patagonian exhibit of Argentinian (laughs) dinosaurs. Who doesn't want to see that? And uh, to be fair, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, But there was a section on Australian dinosaurs, which even in my youth, I didn't really know or learn much about Australian dinosaurs. And there's probably a reason for that, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, But there are a lot of dinosaurs that were discovered around the town of Winton. In fact, the area surrounding the town has yielded a number of previously unknown dinosaurs. And very famously, there is the Dinosaur Stampede National Monument at Lark Quarry Conservation Park, which is just south of the town of Winton. The fossils there date to the Albion or Turian periods between 104 and 192 million years ago. And at the Lark Quarry Con- Conservation Park, you can see what is considered to be the site of the world's 
only known record of a dinosaur stampede with fossilized footprints interpreted as a predator stalking and causing a stampede of around 150 two-legged dinosaurs. Huh. Though that interprets... Sorry, two, two-legged. Hang on, because that interpretation oh, God, has been challenged oh. challenged in recent years with evidence suggesting that it may have actually been a natural river crossing there and not a stampede. So, either way, there are literally thousands of footprints fossilised uh, and now protected by a building that you can go and see. Very, very cool. Wow. In 2009, so very much not my youth anymore... There were further discoveries near the town of uh, near near the town of Winton. Uh, three early Cretaceous dinosaurs, and I'm going to butcher these, so I apologise. Uh, Ostrilovenator. I know that sounds insane. Wintonotitan and Diamantinosaurus were announced. Uh, Australovenator and Wintonesis are a type specimen of that genus that were named after the town. And the specimens were unearthed at the Matilda site, not far northwest of the town. So that's pretty cool. There were some unique dinosaurs discovered there and uh, only in 2009. So there are are digs continuing and actually... uh, ah, Hang on, I'll come back to this in a sec. I'd also be amiss if I didn't mention that there is a possibility that there was an asteroid strike in the area. Oh! No, <laughs> so if, you, if you look from the air, there's a, the Diamantina River from the town of Winton goes north, uh, goes sort of northwest in a hook-like shape. And because of that peculiar shape, very specific shape um it has drawn scientific attention in march 2015 geoscience australia reported that the river's course uh at near its headwater flows along the edge of a roughly circular crustal anomaly that might well be an impact structure it is an area that is described by richard blewett a senior official at Geoscience Australia, approximately 130 kilometres in diameter, characterised by geomagnetic magnetic anomalies, and Winton lies roughly 60 kilometres beyond its eastern edge. Which I know 60 kilometres sounds really far, but there's nothing else out here. Um, <laughs> the Sydney Morning Herald reported that recent seismic studies undertaken there indicated that long ago an asteroid or comet struck the area, releasing the equivalent energy to roughly... 41 zettajoules or 600 zetta. That's approximately equivalent to 650 million atomic bombs that were dropped over the city of Hiroshima. (laughs) Though the asteroid impact has not been confirmed, but this could be done with some core samples from the ground in the central ring structure to a depth of a few hundred metres. The impact if indeed is the explanation for the anomaly, would have happened roughly 300 million years ago. So much older than those dinosaurs. So if you are a geologist and you're based in Western Queensland, I'd love for you to go out there and confirm this to me. It would be very, very cool. But if you're not a geologist, but you do happen to find yourself in the Western Queensland outbook, 
head to the town of Winton and be sure to check out the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum of Natural History and the Dinosaur Stampede National Monument at the Lark Quarry Conservation Park. And thank you to their incredible team for putting together the exhibit in the Queensland Museum for myself and my family to enjoy. And just to finish off, the icing on this cake is that they often have an annual dig that you may be allowed to participate in if you're there at the time. So, my dear listener, if you head to Winton, there is a possibility that you may discover a new dinosaur. Wow. Which is pretty Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't... That's... uh, it's, It's amazing that it's such a rich concentration of all that dinosaur remains and discoveries. It's it the the land out there is exceptionally ancient, um, and as a result, and also very very dry, of course, naturally being where it is, except for when it flooded that one time, <laughs> um, and as a result, there is a lot of um, yeah, just just a lot of dinosaur bones in the area. I think it, uh, and I may be incorrect on this, but I do believe that sort of area was on uh, the edge of, uh, there was an inland sea once upon a time, you know, ancient, long ago, uh, that was in that area. And I think that's also why we found um, quite a lot of fossils in that area because it was quite a shallow sea. So I'm not sure how close the edge of that was to the town of Winton, Um, but that definitely contributes to the amount of dinosaurs and stuff like that, So, um, which is really, really cool. And, again, it's a huge area that we're talking about because it is so barren. Um, It's part of the great artisanal basin. So for our international listeners that are thinking, how the hell does anyone live out there? Um, Long story short, there's wells that go down uh, into what I believe is the world's largest uh, underground series of aquifers, which we've mentioned before when we've talked about like Cooper Pedy and and other extremely remote outback towns. So they do pump the water from deep underground. and apparently it smells like rotten eggs because there's still quite a lot of sulfur in it once Ooh. even once it's it's up. Mm, so delicious. the water the water that comes out of the ground, I believe, is about between 70 and 80 degrees Celsius. Um, oh. so they do actually pump it out into uh, large ponds effectively uh, on the outskirts of town where the water is allowed to cool down to ambient temperature temperature which ambient temperature is you know <laughs> 30 35 40 degrees so it's not exactly cold coming out of the tap but um it's a lot better than scalding hot oh well so, that's interesting i, so I also you thought i thought uh one of the th- you mentioned the and i thought you might be tying this into the other thing that you'd seen with the diamantina um the HMS no, diamantina coincidence total coincidence oh okay because you said diamantina river and you had mentioned that the the ship uh, is named after the river and yes you you also said it was the last river class one which i didn't understand and i thought ah he might be going to reveal something about what a river class means because i thought oh yeah it's a ship that can actually sail up a, a river rather than having to be out to sea so can you just slightly elaborate on that 
Um, so when they build a series of ships, they give them a class designation. Uh, and generally it has nothing to do with its capability. Almost, almost never. Um, the river class frigates were in other navies that would have been called destroyers. Um, frigate doesn't specifically mean anything. Um, it, it's kind of what you call any reasonably sized uh, naval vessel that doesn't fit into any other class. It's kind of a weird uh, non-designation. Um, them being called river class is just because all the ships in that class were named after rivers. It's oh. plain and simple. Okay, so nothing to do with their capabilities. It's just what no, they're named nothing after. to do with their capabilities. Right, no. right. Yeah, okay. nothing to do with their with their um, capabilities. They were. Uh, it, this was wartime. These were all built between 1941 and 1944 um, in the Middle War, and they were used by not just Australia, but also like the Royal Navy used them. Um, I think the Canadians used them. I think some of them went to the to the US. So it was just a class of vessel that was built during war and they were all named. Um, now that I actually say that, I don't know if all of them were named after uh, rivers, but I think that was kind of the idea. At least all of the ones in the... Um, Australian Navy, I'm pretty sure were named after rivers, but right. May right. maybe not. Um, but yeah, no, it has nothing to do with the capability. They were built originally to serve as convoy escorts in the North Atlantic. So huh. quite a, a reasonably large ship. Like, like I said, we'd traditionally call them, you'd think of them as a destroyer. Um, I think the reason they weren't called destroyers was because they weren't uh, they were sort of not as heavily armed and slightly smaller than what you'd traditionally call a destroyer. Um, so I think that's why they didn't designate them as destroyer and they called, called them frigates, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay. So, yeah. Um, very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting so to that hear about Winton. Just a coincidence about the River Diamantina that goes right near Winton it has nothing to do with the ship. <laughs> Just <laughs> one of those weird coincidences. Ah, oh, that's funny. Now, speaking of weird coincidences, Australia's federal whistleblowing laws have not protected anyone since their inception. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely incredible. So they've not successfully protected a single person since their inception. Uh, the Human Rights Law Centre released a report last Tuesday, excuse me, last Tuesday, examining 78 court filings in 70 separate cases which whistleblowers sought protection under federal and state whistleblowing regimes. The report found that not a single successful case brought by a whistleblower under different federal laws designed to protect public or private sector employees who speak God. out about wrongdoing. The report found that in just 15 cases at a state or territory level where a whistleblower or a party acting for the whistleblower had been successful, a rate of about one in five 
One of those successful cases saw a whistleblower awarded just $5,000 for suffering reprisals following a disclosure. Four involved successful in preventing the disclosure of the whistleblower's identity and two related to the ability of whistleblowers to seek access to documents or information. The unsuccessful cases showed uh, showed cases often failed due to the inability to causally link an act of reprisal to a whistleblower's decision to speak out. Whistleblowers were also self-represented uh, in 21 of the unsuccessful cases, which suggests that their access to justice is an acute issue. The report only searched available judgments on legal databases, meaning it cannot be considered exhaustive and could not take into account negotiated settlements, the details of which are usually confidential. But author Kerian... Pender said, despite the limitations of the findings, clearly revealed the practical problems faced by whistleblowers, relying on the protections available at a state or federal level. They say research shows that Australian whistleblower laws are not working as intended. Protections that look good on paper have not translated into practically accessible, enforceable rights in practice. The Labor government is currently pursuing reforms to its Public Interest Disclosure Act, which is designed to protect government employees. The act, the act commenced in 2014. The first portion of Labor's reforms passed in June, and further reforms are pending. The what did I call it? Human Rights Law Centre, which last week launched its own whistleblower legal support service, has made a series of recommendations to improve the whistleblowing laws across the country, including by introducing a reverse onus on employers to prevent detrimental acts against the whistleblower, something which already exists in federal corporate whistleblowing protections. The report also recommends that whistleblowing laws be enforced by dedicated regulatory bodies and calls for whistleblower protection authorities to be established in each jurisdiction to advise and protect individuals. The federal government is planning to consult on the establishment of such a body and has previously promised to release a discussion paper to kickstart the reform process. But that discussion paper hasn't been released. What a surprise. Yeah, what a surprise. The Human Rights Law Centre also wants a dedicated whistleblower office that sits within federal parliament, which would train MPs and senators with dealing with whistleblowers. This recommends uh, creating a public fund scheme to enable whistleblowers to be properly represented in legal proceedings, a reward scheme to incentivize public interest whistleblowing, and laws allowing whistleblowers who are aware of fraud and government contracting to commence proceedings on behalf of the government. The latter two of those proposals were modeled on schemes already operating in the US. Independent Senator David Pollock who Pocock. Pocock, sorry, uh, who had to use parliamentary privilege to make public a Santos whistleblower's complaint about dolphin kills earlier this year, said that the report is damning. When whistleblowers speak up, we all benefit, Pocock said. Yet our laws are not encouraging people to speak up when they see corruption, misconduct, and maladministration. 
Whistleblowers have approached me to seek protection of my office in raising concerns on a range of issues. This tells me that the system is broken. Parliamentary privilege should be a last resort, and yet my colleagues and I are dealing with people who feel unable to call out bad behaviour through the usual legal channels. This is deeply, deeply disturbing. The fact that David Pocock had to use his parliamentary privilege so that he could not be prosecuted to reveal publicly about dolphin kills earlier this year is quite disgusting, if I'm honest. The fact that the whistleblower didn't have the the protections available, or at least felt like they didn't have the protections available, that they wanted to go to him rather than blowing the whistle themselves. It's really, really upsetting because this was one of those reforms that I thought was going to have a big impact. And yet, as we've seen, it's literally not protected anyone. Uh, Perhaps that might have been the point. I think that these... Look, these these gutless mongrels who are just paying lip service to protecting whistleblowers, I, I have no respect for them. It's it's completely unsurprising in many ways, given the the people most impacted by whistleblowers are those crafting the rules. But this charade of doing the right thing and taking these models and having freaking committee meeting after committee meeting and fine sounding legislation. That goes nowhere is uh, it 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 really boils my blood. It's things that I think if somebody is seeing something wrong, I mean, let's face it, they, they they always put that that bloody message across. Well, you know, if you're seeing something going wrong, or if you're seeing something that's not right, speak up and say something about it. But the bottom line is, when people do speak up about it. They just get treated like crap. In my whole my whole lifetime, I've looked at it and I've seen these whistleblowers come out and I'm thinking, you poor bastard, you've seen this thing that's going wrong. You've decided I'm going to roll the dice and take a chance on, see, on saying what this company or this government department, and let's face it, it's frequently a government department, is doing wrong and expose it to the public and they just get absolutely pilloried and destroyed it's it's just revolting on how how yeah. how whistleblowers are, are treated and i, I just i i despise these people who who are up there saying well look we're we're doing these laws we're doing that now you've got someone there like an independent like pocock uh, which you know i have a fair fair bit of respect don't agree with him on everything but i have a fair bit of respect for him and him being him having to use extra powers that these freaking bureaucrats grant themselves in order to try and get the freaking truth come out i just i look oh, oh, it peeves me somewhat <laughs> i can tell I can tell um, the passion in your voice, the fact that, but but this should oh, anger really, it really sh- shoots it, me. It really does. It's just it's just like I, you, you you see people come forward and they're they're literally putting their life and their career and 
everything on the line for what they believe is right. Now, if it turns out they're wrong and it turns out that they saw this thing and that the government comes in and says, no, look, you didn't have this clearance or something, you're completely wrong, then fine, they come out and they say, no harm, no foul. But they're risking everything and they just just get treated like crap. Exactly. Oh. And and this, you know, incentivizes um, less people, – people look at other whistleblowers and go, well, do I want to oh. do that? You know, and it's yeah. like – like David Pocock says, it's in everyone's best interest when whistleblowers blow the whistle. Because it, you're right, if they're wrong, we can investigate and clarify and, oh, okay, that's not what's going on here and we can all move on with our life. But very, very rarely will someone blow the whistle and not be correct. It's more often than not, it's something, you know, horrendous or there's corruption or, or fraud or, or something like that that needs to be brought to to the public's attention. We need to sort this out. And it doesn't matter uh, whether it's at a, a corporate or a, a state or territory level or, or at a federal level. It's important for, for everyone, every Australian taxpayer, every Australian ratepayer needs to know what's going on um, with these sorts of things. And when you've got people standing up and then being run across hot coals or, you know, the fact that they paid them, what did I say, $5,000 uh, oh, in compensation. $5,000 for suffering reprisals. Now, we don't know the specifics of that case, but $5,000 doesn't, that does hardly anything at all. That's not a lot of money. Um, I, I can't imagine what, $5,000, how $5,000 is an appropriate uh, compensation for damn near anything. Um, it's also quite disturbing that 21 of these cases, the whistleblower self-represented, which says to me that they don't yes. have, they don't have the uh, financial capability to have representation. And we've seen this in the past. We spoke about this probably about a year ago where uh, an ATO whistleblower, the, the ATO effectively were trying to bankrupt him. And yes. it was only through, you know, the, the public case uh, that he was able to get financial assistance from... Uh, a number of people that, you know, sort of took up his cause. But it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't – you shouldn't be at the mercy of wealthy people to to come and champion your cause. The whole point of this was that we had whistleblowers protection, but they're not protecting anybody. In fact, over the last 12 months or since the inception, it's been terrible. Um, I'll just say you said that the, the, fed, the federal laws – have protected no one or, or haven't enabled anyone to, to, to use them. And the state and territory laws, only one in five successful. I mean- One in five. And no successful, oh. that level of success was $5,000 for suffering reprisals. And four of them were in preventing disclosure of the whistleblower's identity. So oh. out of those five, I mean, we're talking the bare minimum, right? 
the fact that only four of the 15 cases uh, had the their names not disclosed, that's horrendous. Oh. Knowing this, if I was about to blow the whistle on something, I would certainly think twice about it. I wouldn't want to do it. Nope. No way. I don't want to ruin my life because that's, you know, probably what's going to happen. Um, or at least I'm certainly not going to be protected. So good no, on the absolutely no no guarantees what's what whatsoever. You're looking at those you're looking at those chances and yeah. You know, thank God there's people still prepared to bloody roll the dice with shit odds like that. Uh, it's to, yeah to to bring to you know to bring out the the corruption that's there. It's just a, a, a systemic effort to destroy people who actually want to tell the truth about what's going on. Yeah, and, you know, we need... Uh, it's good to know there are some really good people in the world that are willing to continue to do this. And quite frankly, good on the Human Rights Law Centre uh, for publishing this report and bringing it to light. Of course, that's why we're talking about it. And the Guardian, uh, however you feel about the Guardian uh, news organisation, it's good that they published this and brought it to our attention, which is where we're you know, getting a lot of our information from and the fact that we're talking about it. Um, hopefully this kicks the Labor government up the bum to actually make some changes. However, yeah, they got a lot going on at the minute. I don't think this is going to be high on the list of priorities, though I wish it would be. Um, oh. This this is something that needs to be a priority and needs to change. I'm glad that Independent Senator David Pocock is aware of this um, because he can at least be a a voice, a champion for this in the upper house, um, not that he, you know, as a senator has a huge amount of pull, but he can at least be, be the um, the the champion to push this across the line, hopefully, because something needs but to change. But he can say something. As you, you said, using his parliamentary privilege, there's a lot of um, information that he can put across and there's a lot of comments that he can, can make. So I'm with you. Good yes. on him. And I think if you are listening to this in the very unlikely case that you are listening to this and – are thinking about being a whistleblower. Honestly, my advice to you right now would be to go to someone like independent senator, senator David Pocock, uh, talk to him and his department about it, or get in touch uh, with the the um, Human Rights Law Center to see what they can do before you actually blow the whistle. Because the last thing we wanted you to do is end up ruining your life for trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I think that's. Uh, it's very depressing, sound, isn't it? Advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah. know it is. De it is depressing, but it is. It is sound advice, and that's the reality. Yeah. <laughs> now, what's been going on this week in Australian history? Okay, this week in Australian history, we're covering the dates. August 31st to September the 6th. August 31st in 1918, the Battle of Mont-Saint-Quentin. 
a famous Australian action under the leadership of Lieutenant General Sir John Monash begins. In 1945, the Liberal Party of Australia is founded by Robert Menzies. Later becomes Sir Robert Menzies. And uh, if memory serves me right, he was the longest serving mm. Prime Minister of Australia as well, wasn't he? He was. I don't have the time uh, that he served to to hand, but yes, he was. He was the longest serving. Uh, I think maybe second to him was little Johnny from memory. Just Google it. He served for 18 years, 163 days. 18 years. Wow. That's That's a long time. God. Uh, September 1st, saying the month of September 1906, Papua New Guinea is made an Australian protectorate. Uh, 1912, the Golden Wattle is declared as Australia's national flower, but only declared as Australia's uh, official floral emblem in 1988. So what's that, 76 years later? And uh, you might be too young to remember the Bruce's sketch by Monty Python. I think they're all called Bruce. Bruce Beer and something something else, um, and there was the reference to the wattle. And this here's the wattle, the emblem of our land. You can stick it in a bottle or you can hold it in your hand. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, nine, <laughs> 1934, the uh, pajama girl is discovered in Albury, New South Wales. That was a um, uh, a, a murder case, and it was apparently uh, the wife of a man who confessed, and then later on there was um, speculation that it, it wasn't actually, it hadn't actually, sorry, that he hadn't actually done it, and it might have been somebody else. However, that's the uh, the the name of that 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 grisly little thing. Uh, 1951, on September 1st, the ANZUS Treaty between Australia, New Zealand and the United States is signed in San Francisco. Uh, September 2nd, 1904, the first Australian Open golf tournament is held and that surprised me that it was so long ago, 1904. 1904. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 1918 uh, was the death of John Forrest, who was an Australian explorer. He was also the first Premier of Western Australia and a Cabinet Minister in Australia's first federal parliament. So he was a busy boy. Lived a life, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, bloody oath. Uh, 1928, uh, St Mary's Cathedral opens in Sydney after well, – actually, I'm just going to throw in a, a question to here – after X number of years of construction. How long do you think it took them to create, uh, to, to build St. Mary's Cathedral? St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney. How long, how long the construction lasted? Like how many years? Yes, how many years? How long does it take to build a cathedral? I, I think it's, I think they're like notoriously long. So I'll say, I don't know, 10 years. It's, look, it is a lot. It is a long time, and it's 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 a lot more than ten. So I'll give you a second guess. Oh, 
<laughs> a lot more than 10. Yeah. Oh, th- 30 years. I mean, it is very beautiful. 30 years, you're half right. 60 years, apparently. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's that? Hang on. 1928, it opens. So 60 years of construction means it started in 1868. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. Generations of stonesmiths worked on stonemasons worked on it, you know. That's incredible. That is. Look, you're right. It is a beautiful building. In fact, I, uh, uh, at the end of last year, I went up there and specifically uh, there's something the art gallery. I thought, oh, I haven't popped into St. Mary's Cathedral for a long time. Check it out. And yeah, wandering around, I'm thinking, gosh, you don't see this level of stonemasonry uh, nowadays. Sixty oh, and years. That'll be why it took sixty years <laughs> to build. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got this new project. How long? How long? Uh, Nineteen forty-eight. Australian National Airways ANA DC three uh, Lutana crashes near Quirindi, killing thirteen. Uh, Nineteen eighty-four. Seven people were shot dead and twelve wounded in a bikey shootout between rival bikey gangs, the Bandidos and Comancheros, the Sydney suburb of Milpera, known colloquially as the Milpera Massacre. And uh, I know we're explicit, but I'll, I'll slightly modify it. <laughs> it was a cluster F. An absolute cluster F what went on there. I had a little bit of a look out there and there was um oh there's a whole litany of of uh breaks in the, the, the club and you know bruised egos and uh people turning up and things were meant to be going a particular way and somebody accidentally, according to the report that I read, accidentally let off a shotgun and then it all just went to hell. Um yeah. That was that was just an insane event. Uh, probably before your time, but um, yeah, it was a bit before my time. I yeah, do believe I, that there was yeah. quite a few guys from both of those bikey gangs that were like Vietnam veterans and stuff like that. So, um, oh, well, oh, okay. Well, that's probably not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. 1987, the Australia Telescope Compact Array is open. September 3rd, 1899, Frank McFarlane Burnett, biologist and Nobel Prize winner, was born in Tarragon, Victoria. 1901, the flag of Australia and the Australian Red Ensign are adopted by the Government of Australia as official flags following a national design competition, and the flags first flown from the Royal Exhibition Building in Melbourne. The Australian I've, red. I've always had ensign. a, a, yeah. I've always had a special soft spot for the red ensign, um, which is basically it's an Australian flag, but it's just like a red version of it instead of blue background. It's the red background. Um, you, you mostly see it on ships, uh, like merchant ships will will use the red ensign. Though occasionally you de- do see it being flown on like a flagpole and stuff. Um, we have we literally have a bloke around the corner who flies a red ensign. I like it just because it's something different, um, and it's I, I don't know. I think it looks cool. I think it's one of those things that it looks cool because it's not the normal version. If you know what I mean. Um, yep. 
that's part of part of its appeal, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an interesting one, and as my understanding is, it's it's a, uh, a, a it's a civil version or civilian version of it. So there's there's less. Um, oh no. Less bureaucracy like, around reg- it, yeah, and regulation around it and things like yeah. that. I believe so, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I do believe it has somewhat been co-opted by the sovereign citizen type crowd. Uh, oh, okay. And they don't. I, I think it's something to do with, and again, this is just off the top of my head, so I may be completely wrong, but I think it was something along the lines of the very first flag that was flowing. Um, as the national flag was a red ensign or something like that, and then somehow they've latched onto this idea that the blue one that we traditionally think of as the Australian flag isn't real, and so everything that happens doesn't count, and, you know, it just sort of spirals out of control uh, in this (laughs) conspiratorial-type thinking, you know. Um, But the red ensign's cool. (laughs) Yep, yep, it is. Uh, continuing September the 3rd in 1926, we have the Canberra Can- Times uh, first published. 1939, Australia follows Britain and declares war on Germany. Um, 1940, the heavy cruiser HMAS Australia takes part in Operation Menace off Dakar. Um, 1988, federal referendums on four-year parliamentary terms, recognition of local government and other issues are defeated. Now, if you're interested, go and have a look up uh, those because I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just nick in there and get a, <laughs> a quick overview of the, of the questions. And it's, it's no wonder it didn't pass. It's just so freaking complicated. As we've said before, you have to make a referendum question very simple. Oh, <laughs> these were just these were just absurd. I I can imagine people falling to asleep after reading, you know, getting down to the second one, let alone the uh, the final two. So, yeah. But if you're interested, look look <laughs> look them up. 1996 Australian National Flag Day was proclaimed to. Not surprising, given the comment before, the uh, date before, was proclaimed to commemorate the first flying of the Australian flag. September fourth, eighteen ninety-seven, Essendon wins the first VFL premiership. Uh, that's that's Aussie Rules uh, Victorian Football League, later Australian Football League. Although I think, hmm. I'm not the sports person, but I think VFL I'm, might still exist. I'm pretty sure the VFL became the AFL. Yeah. 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 We, we've either and got people nodding along with us or, yeah, or screaming or, no. at their, their phone <laughs> thinking, you freaking idiots, have you no idea? <laughs> I don't really watch AFL anymore. I, sometimes I do, um, but... I believe, and again, I might be wrong, but I believe it was the VFL literally became, so all the clubs that were in the VFL. So basically the VFL just expanded in allowing clubs from outside of Victoria. And of course, you know, we do have like a Brisbane club, some New South Wales clubs, um, 
soon to be Tasmanian club, which we spoke about a few few months ago. Um, but again, I might be wrong. Yeah, don't and crucify in fact, we've, me. We've, we've, we featured the uh, the subreddit. Uh, Tasmanian AFL in our Sunday shout out. That's right. Did too. Pre- yeah, prepared for the uh, the upcoming Tassie team, which I don't know if it's settled, but uh, is so far probably going to be called the Tassie Devils. But yeah, as oh, you like that, to say, it has to be sure. Right? right? It has to. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Ex- exactly. Exactly. Um. 1992, on September 4th, Lynn Arnold becomes Premier of South Australia after the resignation of John Bennon following the near collapse of the State Bank. Oh. Yep, not great for uh, for people there. And, uh, yeah, it sounds I, like a mess. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a mess. 2006, Steve Irwin, crocodile hunter, dies after being stung by a stingray. Yeah, I cannot believe it, it was that long ago. I, my thoughts exactly, DK. 2006, you know, 17 years ago, I was surprised as well. He lives on so, in our hearts. That's not a pun, presumably. No, he. I love him. I think he's a, he's a national treasure. People genuinely... Um, and that also was not a pun about how he died at all. <laughs> I'm, oh, sorry. <laughs> he's you're, a national you're such a nice bloke and I threw, the, I threw, you, on, <laughs> threw you on that. I know that's not what you meant. It's something I would say. But <laughs> I'm sorry, DK. I couldn't resist that one. <laughs> um. <laughs> September 5th. Uh, 1984, Western Australia becomes the last Australian state to abolish capital uh, punishment for ordinary crimes, i.e. murder. Uh, New South Wales maintained... 1984? Yeah, exactly. 1984. I can't remember, um, was it Roy or Ron? Something like that. It was in the mid to late 60s was the last person... Yeah, right. Uh, okay, hanged. that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, so they they, they obviously um, took it off the books then. Uh, New South Wales maintained as a punishment for treason and piracy with violence until 1985. So, Piracy yeah. with violence, that's interesting. I've Isn't actually just, I've just looked it up. Queensland abolished... Uh, in 1922, but its last execution was in 1913. It was the earliest state to do it. So good on progressive Queensland. South Australia was 1964, last execution, and it was struck from the record in 1976. As we said, WA, their last execution was in 1964 and 1984, so it took 20 years to get it off the books. Oh. New South Wales was 1940 was the last execution and off the books in 1985. Victoria was 1967 last execution, off the books in 75. So oh. Queensland way ahead of the pack in 1913 wow. and then abolished in 1922. So that's really wow, interesting. Victoria doesn't stack up well in a number of these things. <laughs> no, not as progressive as they like to think, I tell you. No, notching a little, another bloody notch in the belt. 
you know, falling behind Queensland there, falling behind South Australia in the uh, suffrage of, I think it was the suffrage of uh, of, of women voting yep. and uh, several other ones. So uh, pick up your game, Victoria. Bloody Dan uh, Andrews, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, bloody Dan. Um, and piracy with violence. Uh, where any person who, with intent to commit, or at the time of, or immediately before, or immediately after committing the offence of piracy, in respect of any vessel, yeah, you know, with uh, assaults with intent to murder or injure a person on board like, belong to the like vessel, genuine pirates, pirates in the Caribbean type piracy. That's well. well I can't yeah, imagine look, there was a lot of that going on in New South Wales. No, no, but look, maybe it depends how it's d- defined. It was um, something that caught me by surprise that uh, that little bit of piracy with violence. Um, 1985 on September 5th, uh, John Howard replaces Andrew Peacock as federal liberal leader and thus a federal leader of the opposition. 1994, politician John Newman is murdered outside his Cabramatta home. Uh, September 6, uh, 1905, the last sighting of the clipper ship Loch Vernaca, or Vernaca, uh, which sinks off Kangaroo Island, killing 32, and only one body was found. And... Finishing up this week in Australian history, 1990, the Royal Australian Navy commenced contributions to Operation Damask in the 1991 Gulf War. I think after that, I could do with a beer. And that brings us to our Forex bottle top question. Now, this one you're either going to know straight away, in which case I've got just a, a follow-up um, uh, Forex bottle top question. If you don't actually guess it, um, then I'll save, I'll save the other one. But uh, I reckon you'll get this. Who bowled the infamous underarm in one-day cricket against New Zealand? Oh, um... <laughs> Oh, oh, give me a minute. i got to – Yep. Oh, I can, I can see it. Time. I've watched that many <laughs> – I've watched this that many times. Um, who – Who bowled it? Oh, I want to say no. <laughs> I wanted to say it's someone – Campbell, but I don't think that's right. Oh, I don't Ooh. know. I, I understand why you're going there. That brings, let, let that me brings, read, read, out, yeah. read out the bit of information without saying the name and see if it comes in. So the underarm bowling incident of 81's a controversy that took part that took place in February 81. Uh, Australia were playing the Kiwis in a one-day uh, cricket match, uh, the third in, in a best-of-five comp. And with one ball, the final over remaining in the match, New Zealand required a six 
to tie the match. So for our international viewers, basically you have to slog the ball right over the boundary. So I, I suppose in Like baseball, an American's, yeah, home run. Home run, run. yeah. like yeah. yeah. So basically you have to smash smash the ball, um, you know, get the bounce right and, and uh, yeah, give it a good, give it a good building. To ensure that New Zealand were unable to achieve it, the Australian captain, <clears throat> obscure name, instructed his bowler, and I'll give you a hint here, and younger brother, <clears throat> obscure name again, to deliver the last ball to batsman Brian Merkechny, underarm along the ground. So basically that means he was able to just roll it along the ground, which means the batsman was unable to have any chance whatsoever. So uh, this bowler did so, forcing McKechnie to play the ball defensively, meaning Australia won. Uh, even though it was legal, it changed the they changed the rules after that against the traditional spirit of cricketing fair play to make sure it couldn't happen again. It's just not cricket. So the <laughs> captain was the brother of the um, uh, bloke of who... Of the bowler. Bowler, yeah. bowler. Yeah. And when you said Campbell, I'll tell you, you had our one, two, three... Four letters correct. The C, the A, the E, and the L. See, I don't watch a lot of cricket. No. Just, yeah. So I'm I'm stuffed. I, I don't know. Yep. You'll tell me and I'll still not know who that is. <laughs> uh, Trevor was the name of the captain. And um, sorry, Greg was the name of the captain. Trevor was the name of it, and it was Greg Chapel instructed his younger brother Trevor Chapel to bowl it. There you go, Greg Chapel. That I know that name. Yeah, so which is why I said you were pretty close with um, with, with Campbell. There you go. That sucks. That's good. That... Oh, I'll save the I'll save the <laughs> other one for for later. <laughs> Dirty, bloody cheating. There's actually, uh, that's one of those ones that's like, it was technically, technically it was legal, uh, but still a dirty move, if you ask me. But, you know, anything to win, you know? Well, look, from from that point of view, on paper, you can't blame them. Uh, In reality, on the the moral side of it, I can see the questions of it, but. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't yeah I wouldn't have done it I couldn't nah no, uh, no, I got too much I, honor I, for that but and I seem to recall that the um the the look of disgust on the batsman as he played it defensively I I can't remember I seem to have in my head that he basically so, sort of had a sneer chucked his bat down and sort of like yeah a couple of dickheads so it's the sort of thing that you go if this was a local club or something you know you could probably. Eat see something like this happening, but at an international level in a proper competition, you'd be, you'd be gobsmacked that it would happen, you know? Also, it's just not, it's not very sportsmanlike. It's very Australian though. It's. (laughs) Um, Oh, well, gosh, we might get into that another time, but there's some of those. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Now, 
Thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Good night. See you, DK. See you later.